If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are back in our study entitled, Faithful Sojourners, Walking Worthy in a Wayward World. Faithful Sojourners. And that is the whole point of 1 Peter so far, isn't it? Is how to be a faithful sojourner. How to be faithful to the Lord as we sojourn through this world. It's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 Peter, so allow me to take a few moments by way of recap to cover what we have seen so far. Peter was first writing in chapter 1, reminding the believers of the sovereign work of God in their salvation and how he has given them a sure hope for the future. He does this to give the believers something to focus on just beyond the horizon of this life so that as they sojourn through the barren lands of this world, And they are driven to the dirt by various trials. They can lift their weary heads and see that indeed their hope is still there just beyond the horizon, just as God has promised. As faithful sojourners, they are not to react sinfully as they are persecuted or as they face suffering both great and small, but instead are to continue on in their pursuit of holiness in the fear of the Lord. In other words, the pain and suffering and unjust treatment that they experience in this lifetime must not influence them to live according to their old passions and lusts, but they must walk in the new way after the new nature. Peter then gave some very practical exhortations for slaves under masters, citizens under governments, wives and husbands, The point of all of how we are to live in this life, regardless of whether or not we are in the midst of suffering or persecution, is so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. In other words, the way that we live for the glory of God is by being very careful of our Christian witness in front of a watching world, knowing that a perishing world is indeed watching us, and they need to see Christ. It was Christ, after all, who set the ultimate example in suffering unjust punishment, didn't He? Or unjust treatment. He suffered the most unjust treatment that anyone has ever experienced, and yet He did it without sin. That's in a nutshell what we have seen so far in First Peter. The last section we looked at was chapter 3, It was verses 8 through 12. We were looking at a godly life. And we were saying in that sermon that it was sort of the end cap of a larger section of teaching where Peter was primarily focused on the practical outworking of godliness in our lives. Today is going to mark a bit of a transition point. However, we can see that that practical outworking of godliness in our lives, as it happens, we will see that we will suffer for the sake of righteousness. And so in today's section, we're looking at verses 13 through 17. 
And it's going to contain themes that we've already become quite familiar with in 1 Peter. Themes of suffering and trouble and harm and slander. Not just a generic form of suffering. Peter has something specific in mind, which is suffering at the hands of sinful people for the sake of righteousness. Peter here is exhorting the believers regarding their responsibility in the midst of suffering for good, despite the incomprehensibility that one would ever suffer for doing what is right. And we are to do this because of the sovereignty of God over even the bad things that happen to us. So with that in mind, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and stand with us as we read 1 Peter chapter 3, it's verses 13 through 17. This is the word of the living God. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we have now sung your praises, and we now approach your word, desiring to hear directly from you, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that the soil of our hearts is cultivated and ready to receive the seed of your word, that it might bear much fruit in our lives for the glory of Christ. I pray that as I preach this word, that I would be faithful to it, not adding or taking away, once again, so that Christ is glorified and his people are edified. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. As we study our text this morning, we're going to look at four aspects of suffering for good. Four aspects of suffering for good. The first is the incomprehensibility of suffering for good. That is, our focus is going to be verse 13. So let's read it one more time. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? You've heard the saying, why do bad things happen to good people? This old adage is typically employed when someone who we perceive to be you know, a law-abiding citizen, someone who does good things and gen- generally treats people well, experiences some sort of trouble or tragedy. Now, in a very real sense, this is an absurd statement because truly none among us are good. We are all sinful people. There was only one who was ever truly good. His name was Jesus. And he's the only good person who bad things happened to. But just for the sake of illustration, this maxim displays for us that Even a world that is lost in sin 
understands that it's not normal to receive a bad reaction in exchange for good actions. One does not plant good works in hopes to receive a bad harvest. Let's just be very practical. One does not plant an apple tree in hopes to receive bones. At least you shouldn't. I'm not a farmer, but that doesn't seem logical. We have the proper and even biblical expectation that when we do good things, we will reap a harvest of good. This is what Galatians 6 says, isn't it? That we will sow what we reap. So we expect that if I sow good, I will reap good. I will get good back in return. So then it is counterintuitive for someone to do what is good in God's eyes and then reap harm in return. That doesn't really stand to reason, does it? If we're sowing good, we should reap good. And perhaps this is a natural reaction to what Peter wrote in the previous section. I want you to look back at verse 12 with me. Just verse 12. Here Peter is quoting from Psalm 34, and he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, so let's get this straight. If I do good, then I am counted among the righteous. And then, if I'm counted among the righteous, God's eyes will be upon me and His ears will be attentive to my prayer. And in addition to that, His face is against those who do evil. Well then, how could I possibly have the expectation that I will reap harm if I'm doing good things, right? God's eyes and ears are in my direction and His face is against those who do evil. This is probably representative of how many of us view suffering. If I do good, bad things should not happen to me. If I treat people nicely, I should be treated nicely. If I'm kind and respectful and, and my, I mind my manners, others should respond in kind, especially so if I'm doing what is right before God. This is specifically what Peter has in mind here, after all, is experiencing harm for doing good. This is incomprehensible. It doesn't make sense. But I want you to look at something very important here that Peter says in verse 13. He says, if you are zealous for what is good. The way that he uses the word good in his letter is in reference to not just some generic and general form of nice morality and, and mannerly behavior. It's not just doing a generic good, you know, a good deed, but it is doing what is good in the eyes of God. It is pursuing righteousness and holiness. And he's saying that these people are zealous for what is good. Zealous. We actually, I taught the children's class this past Wednesday, and it just so happened as we were doing the ABCs of theology that we were on Z, and you know what the word was is zeal. And so we talked about what zeal meant. It's passionate. 
It's an all-consuming passion that you are zealous and passionate for what's good. In other words, what Peter is not talking about here is churchianity. It's not merely doing your one good day deed a day, living a moderately clean lifestyle, and attending church on Sunday. That is not Christianity. And that's not what Peter is talking about here. Christianity is a complete and total giving of yourself, committing of yourself, your mind, thoughts, and possessions, and everything in between to Christ. And you do this knowing it will cost you everything. It is saying that though it might cost me my friends, my relationship with my family, promotions, titles, physical pain, social discomfort, no matter what, I am willing to pay the price. Why? Because Christ paid for me. You are zealous then for what is good. You are passionate You are fired up. It is an all-consuming, all-pervading desire in your heart to please the Lord your God and serve Him all of your days. You're not first and foremost looking to cruise through this life on easy street. You are first and foremost looking to live your life in such a way that you might hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when you see the Lord. Sadly, this kind of true biblical Christianity is nothing like what is most commonly found among those who profess Christ. In fact, true biblical Christianity is often labeled fundamentalism, or extremism, or radicalism, Or to have this kind of commitment to Christ is reserved specifically for ministers and missionaries, but not the average everyday Christian who works a nine-to-five. J.C. Ryle said it this way, quote, There is a common, worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. That cuts, doesn't it? So question, is that you this morning? Have you lived the all-too-common, safe, worldly Christianity that, all, that requires no sacrifice, Are you more afraid of offending people than you are of offending God? If so, you'll find that a text like this is indeed incomprehensible. God would never ask me to suffer for Him. I would never have to suffer if I live a good, righteous life. Are you zealous for good? You ought to be. Because it's one of the reasons Christ gave himself for you. Titus chapter 2, one of my favorite texts, verse 14 tells us that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people 
for his own possession, listen, who are zealous for good works. Zealous. It's the same word, zelotes, in the Greek. Now we can see another layer added to the incomprehensibility of suffering for good. Christ died for us to redeem us, to purify us, and to set our hearts aflame for good works. Tell me, who could possibly criticize that? Who could possibly criticize a person who is living their life in such a way that they really, really want to please the Lord? It shouldn't happen. And if we live our lives with that unthinking, guess what? We're going to be really frustrated. We're going to get anxious. We're going to spend our time in suffering mad and angry frustrated and nervous and maybe even depressed because we think that we deserve for only good things to happen to us. The context of this letter, though, and the message of Scripture and our own personal life experience testifies to the contrary, though, doesn't it? That we do live in a world that is riddled with sin. Suffering for good should not happen. But you know what? It does. Part two here is the reality of suffering for good. It's from verse 14, part A. Let's read it. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. The Christian to whom Peter is writing, the Christians rather, to whom Peter is writing, we know that they have been experiencing the reality of suffering for good as Peter has written acknowledging that fact. Back in chapter 1, he said, you have been grieved by various trials. This, in fact, is a major theme of First Peter. It is hope in the midst of suffering. The suffering that they were enduring wasn't, the, wasn't what we normally think of it as. A lot of times we hear the word suffering and we only tend to think of, you know, the really big things, right? Uh, losing someone to cancer, um, a tragic car wreck, losing your job, and it was the only form of income you had. Those are indeed, uh, fall under the umbrella of suffering. But it's not all that suffering is. And we know that from the context of this letter. They were not experiencing government-mandated and sanctioned persecution, but Peter on and on is saying, referring to the suffering that they're enduring. The suffering that they were enduring actually was becoming social outcasts. Look ahead to verse 16. We're going to get to it in just a second. But in verse 16, here he says, those who, you're being slandered by those who revile your good behavior. You're being reviled. You're being slandered. You see, this is just people saying bad things to and about you. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, he wrote that these Christians were being spoken evil of as though they were evildoers. Well, that sure sounds like a lot like today, doesn't it? Christians are viewed as evildoers in that we're called intolerant, unloving bigots who spew oppressive hatred. Beloved, that is being spoken of as evildoers. They are speaking evil of those who do good as though they're evil 
doers. And that is what has been happening to Christians all throughout history. The reality is that we shouldn't be criticized for being passionate, for living a life pleasing to our Creator, but we are. He specifies here suffering for righteousness' sake. In other words, suffering for Christ. Suffering for His cause. Suffering for His gospel. Suffering for His truth. He taught the slaves in in verse 20 of chapter 2 that it's no credit to you if you suffer when you sin. And then in verse 17 here, he's going to say the same thing, that it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. So let's not get these two things confused. If you are a Christian, but you're always late to work, you're a poor employee, and you get fired, it's not because of your faith. That is not the kind of suffering that Peter has in mind. You are just a bad employee. If you are turned away and spurned by your friends and family because you're always mistreating them and you're always criticizing them and you're always saying bad things to them and they put distance in that relationship between you and they, you are not being persecuted for your faith. You're just being a bad friend. Practice being a little more loving and kind. You see, there is a difference between suffering for doing good and suffering for doing evil. But let it not be so of us, brethren. When we suffer because we will, let it be because we are living lives of zealousness for righteousness. That we suffer for the cause of Christ. And as we do, The other reality of suffering for good is that there is a promise for us, and that is one of blessing. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have you ever thought of it that way as you're going through something, as you're experiencing slander on account of your faith, as people are speaking evil of you as an evildoer on account of your faith, have you ever thought for a moment, I am blessed? We saw this back in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And this is also what Jesus taught, isn't it? In the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you persecuted? You are blessed. Blessed how? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Could there be a greater blessing? James 1.12 tells us that if we remain steadfast under trial, we are blessed because we will receive the crown of life. Be an outcast then. Be reviled then for the sake of Christ. And so, my friends, receive the crown of life. Think about these promises. The message of Scripture and Jesus Himself. You are blessed if you suffer persecution for the sake of your faith. So how should that then change your attitude in the midst of suffering? How should you react then to suffering? Let's move on to number three, the responsibility in suffering for good or while 
suffering for good. This is from 14b through 16. Let's read it together. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here we find the main message in this section. Peter has two back-to-back imperatives, so those are commands. Peter now is exhorting the believers as to how they are to live and how to react to the suffering of persecution. In other words, just because you're going through suffering on account of your faith is not an excuse to then put your faith aside is not an excuse to then choose to live as we see fit or to react poorly. In fact, instead, there is a responsibility that you and I have as Christ followers. What's the first one? Do not fear man. Have no fear of them, he says. It's the first imperative. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This is derived from Isaiah chapter 8. Peter is quoting it here, quoting it a bit loosely, where the Lord is telling Isaiah, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. And that's an important passage, actually, Isaiah 8, in understanding what Peter is using that text here for. In the context of Isaiah 8, the northern kingdom of Israel and Aram had threatened to install their own king in the southern kingdom of Judah, replacing Judah's king, King Ahaz. This was a threat that they took very seriously, and it chilled them to the core, the southern kingdom of Judah. They were terrified, so much so that chapter 7, verse 2 says that when they heard the news that Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. In West Texas, they say, I'm shaking in my boots. That would be the West Texas translation of what is going on there. Isaiah had prophesied the word of the Lord to Judah in saying that they shouldn't be afraid because both Aram and Israel would be defeated by another country. God was going to do this. Judah only needed to have faith in God, believing His promises to protect them and to be faithful to His promise. This was the message in chapter 8.13 when he writes what I quoted a bit ago, do not fear what they fear. They're afraid of this other kingdom. But don't fear what they fear. Don't be in dread. For both Judah in Isaiah's context and the elect exiles in the dispersion in 1 Peter, the message is very simple. God will be with you. He will protect you. He will be your refuge. You need only to trust Him. By extension, church, That is the same message for those of us today who are either in the midst of suffering persecution 
or soon will. Why should you not be afraid? Because God will be with you and he will be your refuge. This is such an important exhortation for us to heed. Why? Because the fear of man will keep us silent when we ought to speak. We will not proclaim the gospel as we ought. We will not stand for what is right when we are afraid of man. To that fear, we need to bring in both God's promises to be with us and also hear His clear warnings. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If we truly heed this warning, it will cause us to live in fear, not of man, but in the fear of the Lord. And that's the second thing that he gets at, isn't it here? Second is to fear God. He says, the, he says it this way, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Some of your translations might say, consecrate the Lord in your hearts as holy. In the Isaiah text he wrote, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Listen to this. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. Why? These people can only kill my body, but the Lord can kill both body and soul. Moreover, He will be with us. That last part of the Isaiah text helps us to understand what Peter is saying here in chapter 3, doesn't it? To honor the Lord in your heart as holy is to let Him be your fear, to let Him be your dread. Fear God and not men. These are the two imperatives of this section, the two commands, the two exhortations. And they are back-to-back back here at the verse, end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. Fear, don't fear man, fear God. The idea is that we will be tempted to fear men as we suffer persecution. And that will cause us to act in a manner that is inconsistent with what God has called us to. But when we live in the fear of the Lord... Even in the midst of suffering and persecution, we will walk in a manner that is consistent to what God has called us to. My friends, question to you, which fear do you live with? As you sit here this morning, would you have to say that you have lived with the fear of man? That it has caused you to hold back, to quiet down, to live differently? I don't want to share the gospel with them because I don't want them to be mad at me. You know, I don't want to push my faith on other people. Well, Christ has called you to. Christ said, all authority has been given to me. Go make disciples of all men and teach them how to obey me. That is our charge as Christians is to go push our faith on other people, isn't it? Not, I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek there, of course, but you understand the point. 
We are called to proclaim, called to plead with people, to be reconciled back to Christ. But when we live with the fear of man, we won't. We don't want to lose the relationship. We don't want to offend people. The gospel message is offensive on its own. We don't need to say it in a mean, rude way. It is offensive because it is telling people who are lost in sin that they are on a path to hell and their righteousness is not good enough to get them into the good graces of God. That is deeply offensive. But we proclaim it. Why? Because Christ has commanded us, but also He has made a way for us. But let us never forget that He is Lord. If you profess to be a Christian, that means that you have professed that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. Jesus is not only Savior, He is also Lord. In fact, He must be your Lord in order to be your Savior. If you do not know Christ as the Lord, the ruler, the king, and the ultimate authority, of your life, my friend, you do not know Him as Savior either, despite your profession. The reality is that Scripture tells us that there are going to be a lot of people who professed Christ on the last day who did not indeed know Him. And I don't want that to be you. Because you're here this morning and you have an opportunity to change that. By fleeing to the Christ and submitting to the Lordship of Christ. We must heed this exhortation from the Apostle Peter to honor Christ in our hearts as holy. And when we do, God Himself becomes our sanctuary in the midst of every form of suffering and persecution that we will experience. Third, always be prepared to defend your hope he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The word here is for defense is apologia. If you're familiar with apologia studios, this is where they get their name from, from this word. It's where we get our word apologetics from. It's the defending of the faith, primarily through the use of rationale and reasoning. We have Contrary to what popular opinion is, we have a reasonable faith. And our lives ought to reflect the reality of the certainty of the hope that we have. When you go through storms, when you are persecuted, an unbelieving world ought to be able to see something different about you. Not that you're not going through difficulty, not that you're not suffering but you're different in the middle of it than everyone else I know. That you respond, that you're responding in gentleness and respect, as he says here at the end of verse 15. That you're not snapping back at people. I said a bit ago, the gospel is offensive on its own. We need not add offense to it by being crass or rude. We see that here. Do it with gentleness and respect. You don't treat people who treat you poorly any differently, but instead you continue to love them. You don't raise your voice at people 
in defending your faith as they raise your vo- their voice at you in anger. There's something distinctly Christian about you. We have a sure hope beyond this life, brothers and sisters. And it is a blood-bought guarantee that we will receive our inheritance. And when this is your focus in the midst of suffering and slander, your reactions to people and situations will be entirely different. But you'll see that when your focus is on comfort and your focus is on the fear of man, it's going to be nearly impossible for you to listen to this text because you're suffering persecution in the flesh. And you'll do what he says here in verse 16. Live with a good conscience. Those who slander you, who revile your good behavior, they're going to be put to shame when on the last day at the great white throne judgment. When they stand before Jesus as Lord and they have to bring the fil- their filthy rags of their own self-righteousness and say, here, let me into heaven now, please. And they will be turned away because those filthy rags are not enough. And there you are being justified in the court, the high court of heaven, because you have trusted in the Lord your God, because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, and you have then lived out a life in pursuit of holiness, they'll see that and they will be ashamed. Your job then is to not make people feel ashamed. Your job then is not to force that aspect onto people here, but to Walk in gentleness and respect. You must focus on how you live in front of this watching world. And to stress the point again, this is especially in the middle of suffering and persecution. So differently ought you to live, so uniquely Christian ought you to live that people just have to know about the hope that you have. What's your secret? Tell me about it. What is it that makes your religion different? Or why do you believe in God? How can you trust a book that was written over thousands of years and thousands of years ago by all of these different men? How can you be sure that your sins are forgiven? How can you be sure you're going to heaven? As a Christian, you must be prepared to answer these questions. That means that you ought to have a grasp on the truths of Scripture, at least enough to tell people why you believe what you believe. We would not want to have to say, like I say about the Dallas Cowboys, well, I grew up this way. Well, I grew up in church. That's why I believe in God. No, that's not a defense. That's not a defense. We ought to be able to say, I believe in God because of this text, and this text, and this text, because of natural, general revelation, because I see the sunrise, because His Spirit dwells within me, because I have exercised faith in Jesus Christ, and my sins are forgiven, and His Spirit has been poured into my heart, and His love shed abroad, and I now live differently, and I'm a new creation. This is why I believe in God. And then you can live, lead people to the cross. Here at Flatland Bible Church, 
We are serious about Scripture. We will preach the Word and we will teach the whole counsel of God. But you, church, as you sit in the seats, you also must be preparing yourself to answer anyone who would ask you to explain what you believe. So do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? Could you, by yourself, lead someone to Christ by sharing the gospel with them? Could you lead them through Scripture and show them the promises of God for people lost in their sin? If the answer is no, then apply yourself to study. The answer is no. We've got books in the library that are collecting dust. Go grab one. Read one. If the answer is no, you have my phone number. Call me. Let's have a conversation. Let's walk through it. But don't be okay with no. Why? Because this text tells us be prepared to give an answer. Be prepared to defend your faith. And he's not talking to pastors. He's writing to Christians. Fourth and lastly, the sovereignty of God in suffering for good. Verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than it is for doing evil. It's fitting, isn't it, that we spent last week looking at the sovereignty of God because hopefully with what we learned last week and with that in mind, this text is very easy to understand. That it might be God's will that I endure suffering. You can know, though, that if you are suffering for doing good, that that is God's will for you. Nothing can happen to you or anywhere in this entire universe without the sovereign hand of God. Listen, nothing. I love the attitude of Paul in Acts chapter 20. He says, now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. God's sovereignty over the suffering of Paul. He could have told Paul that people had been planning to do bad things, but he was going to stop them. People are planning to imprison you, but I'm not going to let them. People are planning to afflict you, but I'm not going to let them. But God didn't do that, did He? Instead, God's sovereign hand was in control of every moment, even over His imprisonment and His affliction. Imagine what you would think if you knew that as you carried out what God has called you to do, imprisonment and afflictions awaited you. What would you think? How would you feel? Well, then can we, go, can we go a different way, God? Are there perhaps other cities that we could visit that need the gospel? After all, I'm trying to serve your purposes here in spreading your gospel. But what was Paul's attitude? He said, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My friends, that should be us. He didn't account his life of any value or as precious to himself. 
But so many professing Christians today do indeed account their lives of too much value and is too precious to themselves. Is that you today? Do you love your comfort too much? Is your life too precious to you? Are your possessions so valuable that you won't stand up to testify of the gospel of Christ for fear of man? Are you more afraid of losing your comforts, of seeing the balance in your bank account drop, of people ostracizing you, than you are of obeying the Lord your God? Understand, the Lord has not asked you to care about those things, but to trust and trust them into His sovereign hands. The Lord has called you to know, to believe, and to trust that you are in His sovereign care. And that if He ordained suffering for you, that you would say, not my will, Lord, but yours. That if the culture and your family and your friends or whoever else tells you to stop talking about Jesus, you respond in gentleness and respect I must obey God rather than man. Then, trust that if something bad does happen to you, that God is in control of it. And it happened because He said so. Our God is Lord of all. And as such, He is the one who draws the boundaries around your life. Listen, not you. It is the Lord who directs your steps, not you. It is the Lord who decides how you are to follow Him, not you. It is the Lord's will that is being carried out in all things, at all times, in all ways, at all places, at all times, not yours. So then, trust Him. You are safe in His hands. And if it's His will that suffering comes to you, then He has His foot on the brake and He is the one who determines how far, how hard, and how long it will go. But you can know this, that whatever you must endure for the sake of Christ and for the sake of righteousness, you will be blessed. Both in this life, by experiencing the nearness of God, and also in the next life. But if you're here this morning and you have not ever trusted Christ truly as the Lord of your life, that you recognize Him as Savior and perhaps a great man and perhaps I've been in church quite a bit, but I have never truly submitted myself to the Lord. We're not asking how long you've been in church or how much you tithe or how many committees you could possibly serve on. But have you submitted yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord? Or have you only ever wanted Him as Savior? As you're here today, don't leave without making that right. Be reconciled to Christ this morning. Because He has made a way. He has shed His blood. He has taken on a body like ours lived a perfect and blameless life 
the life that you and I are supposed to live but can't. He lived it for us, went to the cross, bore our sins, everything you've ever committed, absorbed the full measure of God's wrath that was meant for you. He died, he was buried, he was resurrected on the third day, he now reigns supreme on high next to the Father's right hand. And if you will put your faith in him today, call upon him as Lord, you will be saved. He has promised you so. Let's stand. I think the reality is that all of us in here, myself included, could all examine ourselves and see, is Christ truly my highest treasure, my highest pleasure and joy? As we sing this song together, I want you to think about that And I want you to ask the Lord to search your heart and pray and confess, if that's necessary, that we can apply this text to our lives for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sovereign Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the clarity with which you speak. We thank you for the spirit who empowers us to... to, um, live out what was spoken. Lord, we pray that in this moment you would reveal to us the the parts of our heart that we are fearing man and not God, and that we would make sure that that is right today before we leave, so that as we head out into the workplace and back into our life this week, Lord, that we are prepared to make a defense and we are prepared to serve you however you see fit. We pray that Christ would be glorified as we apply this to our life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.